Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Earfirm Network. On War. The World of Klausfitz. Welcome to the Art of War Gaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark, and I am excited about today's episode because I get to talk about the world of Klauswitz. And y'all, you, you know how much I enjoy these historic deep dives. And we're going to be skimming the surface a little bit here, but thankfully we have a massive book in which to explore these themes in depth. I just kind of want to frame the opening episodes here so that we kind of understand where the author was coming from. Because Clausewitz is rather original in terms of authors, at least uh, from my experience. So, looking forward to sharing this book and, and this intro with you. But before we get to that stuff, my wife and I, we recently, of course, I told you last time that she went and bought all the different pillow covers, and we're, we are set for when the new couch arrives. But she also went out and got all of the stickers. And it's just kind of cool to see them arrayed there. And I just want to let you know that those stickers are one of the things we carry on our site. Not the current season stickers, because those are kind of a, a premium, a gift to our uh, Patreon folks, uh, the ones who are at the, the level in which you get stickers. So um, that's a kind of little perk of doing that. But all the other seasons, they are out there for your purchase. And we like them. They're pretty cool. Uh, we're putting them on everything, folders, laptops, all sorts of good stuff. Not just good advertising, but good designs. Go check it out, even if you're not going to buy anything. I recommend checking it out. My wife slash editor slash publisher's work is astounding. It's astounding. I, I know that she's the editor, so she'll be <laughs> hearing this, but I, I say so with no pretension. She's amazing at what she does. So, Go give it a look. I guarantee you'll see something that at least makes you go, wow, that's cool. What I want to talk about next was I recently had somebody ask me like what I did to warm up before a podcast. This individual was wanting to start a podcast himself and was kind of asking me a bunch of different questions. And that was one of the ones that he asked. I was like, I'm, you know, I got to sit here and think about it for a second. I didn't, I didn't know if I had a, a routine necessarily, but I guess I kind of do. I, uh, about half an hour beforehand, I start putting on some music, something that's going to pick me up. And then I come in, set everything up while I'm dancing and singing poorly. But it helps get the vocal cords warmed up, I guess. And then right before I record, I do like, I, I did some theater back in the day. So I do the typical theater kid warm-ups, some breathing exercises, and then I get ready to go. So I suppose I do have a routine and I'm I'm sure every person who does anything like this has their own little warm-up routine that they do some some ritual that you know might have some parts to it that are that serve a 
practical purpose. For instance, the singing, warming up the vocal cords, the breathing exercises, making sure that I am chill and ready to, to just talk. So yeah, I, I suppose they all do have a purpose and everybody's got different needs in that way. So, um, I didn't have really have a good answer for him before. So if you're listening right now, uh, yeah, that's what it is. And I'll, I'll probably text you anyway. So <laughs> really not that important, but in case anybody else was wondering, that's kind of what it is. Next, I wanted to talk about these Admech Codex uh, supplements that have been coming out. If you can hear the smile in my voice, it's because I'm primarily an Admech player. And these two supplements that just came out, the Book of Fire and the Book of Rust, both have really good Admech things in them, uh, like the, the subsection subarmy. And they're very different They're because one is like all machines, no Skitari. The other one is pure Skitari, no machines. And they're both really viable. They're both really good. I Last edition, I never hardly even considered the idea of running an all Skitari list. That, that would have not been tenable. I'm sure there, there's people who did. And I think I recall seeing some tournament lists of people who did, but I wasn't able to pull it off. Why would I, why would I ever abandon my Castellan robots? They're so cool. But this edition, it's absolutely viable. Um, in, in both of these styles of play, you've got some really good options. So if you're an AdMech player, it is a really good time to be an AdMech player. But from the salt that I've been seeing on the boards, everybody else doesn't necessarily like it. But you know what? We didn't have that great of a codex last edition. So, I mean, it wasn't bad. It wasn't Gene Steeler Cult by any, by any stretch of the imagination. Whew, looking over that rule, those rules trying to put together an army. I'm like, this is going to be a test. Uh, if I can win with these guys, I'll feel pretty, pretty good about myself. Lastly, I wanted to talk a little bit about Afghanistan and particularly about the United States uh, military withdrawal from Afghanistan. Now, when this comes out, uh, the news will already be old. Uh, everybody will have already processed it. This is going to be old news to all of you. But at the time that I'm recording this, I wanted to take a few moments to briefly analyze the situation in just a couple of aspects. Now, again, I'm not a military commander that had access to any of the intelligence briefings that anybody else did. When I served, I never went to Afghanistan, so I don't have boots on the ground experience in this particular area. But what I do see from my comfy chair and my books is a pattern, and that pattern is just, like America is just the latest continuation of it. Before the Soviet-Afghan conflict, you had uh, the British and their conflicts with the Afghans. And then you have the Soviets there for almost 10 years and the issues that they were having. And America, now having been there for 20 years, is having similar issues. And chief among, and again, I don't want to get political with this. I don't want to start analyzing this as like what we should or shouldn't do or what somebody did or didn't say, or I'm not even going to really address the humanitarian crisis that is occurring there, as tragic as it is, that's not what I'm going for. What we're looking at here is tactically, strategically, everything kind of went terribly. The infrastructure crumbled, the military forces, the, the state forces were confined to a small area in the airport and around the airport. If this is changed, um, 
in the future, forgive my old information. And everybody that I've heard has been like, well, we didn't expect it to happen this way. People who were for it, people who were against it, all these folks were saying, we didn't expect this to happen, except for the Afghan people. All the interviews I've seen with them, they were saying, well, duh, of course it was going to go down this way. So how did, again, one of the most powerful forces on the planet fall into this trap? The biggest reason, I think, and I think a lot of other people would agree, the biggest reason why these latest three, again, greatest empires of their time didn't do so well in this area was underestimating their opponent. That whole section, that whole section we recently covered, you know, a couple months section on the Soviet-Afghan conflict, that was one of the driving themes beside or behind what we were studying was the constant underestimation of the Afghans from the Soviets and the desire for the Soviets to bring the Afghans into a confront, uh, conventional confrontation. Because yes, if the Taliban had engaged the U.S. forces in a one-on-one, like, straight-up, head-to-head fight, yeah, America would win. Like, every time. Like, if you ran that simulation a thousand times, America would win. Superior firepower, superior training, superior gear. I mean, just about everything that you would need to win a stand-up fight. Much like the British, when they were at their height. Top of the line. But the underestimation. The underestimation of the opponent has been a strong driving theme. And a reliance upon an infrastructure that was unsteady at best. Recall that when the Soviets were setting up their little uh, kind of puppet governments, there was always kind of a weak link. The, The first one was that there was somebody in charge who did not have the consent of the people. They, they weren't necessarily elected. They were put there by the authority to say, okay, you're going to rule in our, in our stead to give us some form of legitimacy. But the people see right through that. They did then they did now. Secondly, when you put together a force of people who aren't in it, their heart's not in it. They're not necessarily folks who signed up because they're patriotic. In a lot of these cases, you have people signing up who have nowhere else to go. They might have like backgrounds that are a little bit shady. They might have uh, no job skills that could be employed elsewhere. So these were kind of the folks who made up a good amount of the Afghan military. Not to diss them. I'm not, I'm not trying to throw shade. It's just, it's just the fact. Those, unfortunately, were the folks who kind of got involved in that. And conversely, the Taliban all want to be there for the most part. I mean, if they didn't want to be there in the first, pl- uh, in the first place, they were then brainwashed into wanting to be there. But theirs is a force of zeal. Whereas, again, the Afghan forces were not so much. And I wouldn't be surprised to learn that there were elements of the Taliban, either of their teachings or straight-up sleepers, who were inside the Afghan military. Recall that during the revolutions between, like, Afghanistan and the Soviet Union, there were always plants. There was always some force within that was eroding the authority, was eroding the bedrock, and then leads to a crumbling infrastructure. I mean, again, the Taliban moved across across Afghanistan so fast. And everybody's like, how did they do that? Well, they were ready. They were ready, and the infrastructure that was put in place in front of them 
was not enough to stop them, didn't have the heart, didn't have the morale. That is one thing that you cannot instill, no, no matter how much drill you have, is the absolute give a darn that one has to have in the first place for true morale. And to give another comparison, again, I, I am not in any way dissing the troops. They absolutely have done a stellar job. They have fought a war that has gone on entirely too long and it cost entirely too many lives. And I respect what they have done. I respect the, what they've done with the cards they've been dealt. However, the vast majority of Americans enjoy some degree of luxury, whether it be running water or walls that don't leak or indoor heating or reliable sources of food, there are some little luxuries that just about every American enjoys. And in a way, that makes us ill-suited to the conflict that we were fighting because the folks that we were fighting, the Taliban, they, most of them did not know such luxuries. Probably have never been around air conditioning, internal heating. I mean, a lot of these guys are from very, very, very rural areas. And when I say very rural, I mean like rural. And for these kinds of areas, rural. And so they're hard. Just by their very nature, the elements are already trying to kill them. You have these tribal conflicts. Uh, you, of course, you have the conflicts between the state and whatever insurgency is going on. And so there's, a, there's just this culture of hardship and endurance that is, it's just there. It doesn't have to be instilled. It doesn't have to be taught. And so I think that the U.S. forces were always going to be at a disadvantage because there was no way that we could match that style of warfare. People can receive amazing training. They can learn to live in the most strenuous environments. I mean, obviously our spec ops guys learn how to do it. But as a general rule, it's hard to condition people to, to operate in an area where they're not accustomed to being. So, Afghanistan. I don't think there was a good way to do it, personally. This is just an opinion. I'm not sure if there was a good way to do it. Like, it's, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say whether or not I think it should have happened or whatever. But just tactically speaking... There should have been better roadblocks in, pl in place, at least if they actually wanted de to delay the takeover. If they didn't, then this is fine. They did great. That is my soapbox. This is the one time Malark is going to really get it on a soapbox about those things, because I would think that the folks who are in charge should have at least had an idea, based on the, what we just studied not too long ago, that the situation is far more complicated than we would think. Anyways, that's that's uh, my blah, blah, blah over that thing. I think it's time to get into the real reason that we're both sitting here to discuss the world of Klauswitz. For our first section here, I wanna discuss the Prussia that Clausewitz would have been experiencing, which namely would be a Prussia that was in decline. Its height, obviously, would have been Frederick II, 
who we've already studied, but steadily after his amazing military accomplishments, the system began to break down. So let's take a look here. We're going to go back real quick, all the way to the Thirty Years' War, which took place between 1618 and 1648. We will cover this conflict, I'm sure, at some point, because it too is a, a fascinating conflict. But it originated in this, this kind of power struggle over a certain, uh, over Catholicism being established. They're like, okay, everybody needs to be Catholic in this area. And there was a bunch of Protestants there that said, nuh-uh. And so because the, the forces were divided, all of the different duchies and all of the different um, barons and landowners had their forces, it kind of precipitated this really big conflict that could be fought on a lot of different fronts. And so after that, you begin to see a state monopoly on force which is to say that the central government, the king in most cases, had the power to issue levies, come up with new laws, and have his edicts be known to all of his subjects. You didn't have that being diversified anymore with each big landowner or title holder being the, the primary source of levies, laws, and edicts in their separate area, and then having all of them be underneath the king, the feudal system. You had all of that coming directly from the monarchy. And this meant a lot of different things were able to take place that really helped out uh, warfare and kind of brought it forward at the time. One of the first things was that the king now could standardize the uniform. And you wouldn't think this would be that big of a deal, but when each regiment has their own uniform, that gets really confusing on the field of battle because you don't necessarily know in the heat of the moment I mean, if you're not familiar with the standards, if somebody's friend or foe and the, uh, the, the friendly fire incidents that take place at that point, you're, you're decimating your own forces. So it doesn't make sense to have it any other way. So the, the standardization of uniform was actually amazing and helped maintain that order on your side, on the king's side. Next was that the king himself paid the soldiers. Now, this may seem like a technicality, but people have their loyalties generally to the person that pays their bills. And so by the main treasury, the, the kingdom treasury, pay, paying out all for all the soldiers, that meant that every soldier's loyalty was more likely to be to the central government. Pretty ingenious when you think about it. And lastly, one of the, one of the really best things about having everybody be integrated together was universal drill. The fact that everybody was practicing from the same playbook, because likewise, there's the uniform being completely different between regiments. If drill was different between regiments, that's confusion as well. You know, if one side has learned how to fight this way, and then another group has learned how to fight this way, and they're all trying to fight together. I mean, those of us who are in physical wargaming know that that can be hard. If you mash up two very different styles or folks that have trained in different parts of the country, it, it's hard to get that flow. And so these things made it much easier for a state to declare war and have it actually go well and not have a bunch of infighting inside. So all of these previous ties, religious ties, political ties, family ties, they were, the, the king said, no more. Those do not matter as much as your loyalty to me. So that works out. 
Next, slowly after the Thirty Years' War and kind of transitioning into the time that we're talking about, there was a change in tactics, kind of evolving out of that pike-and-shot tactic that we discussed oh, many seasons ago. Um, that kind of evolved into the large musket volley marching dudes, uh, what we have come to, what we kind of associate with uh, the British during the American Revolution, that sort of very regimented conventional style, that started to come into power for a number of reasons. One was that the flintlock was replacing the matchlock. Part of the advantage during the pike and shot phase was that matchlocks had the time to reload. They were difficult to reload on the fly. Uh, so the difference is the matchlock is the one where they kind of pour the gunpowder into the pan. There's a little fuse thing that they light and then they shoot by, you know, pulling the trigger and it drops that, that burning fuse down into the gunpowder. Gunpowder goes off, bullet goes flying. A lot of things that can go wrong with that style, uh, including, but not limited to, you know, wet ammo, but for our particular purposes, slow loading times and stressed loading times. So the progression to the flintlock was that everything was contained within. I mean, flintlocks were still a pain to reload compared to today's weapons. You had to do the muzzle, little muzzle loader type thing, but it made it so that you didn't have an exposed pan and it was way faster and more reliable than doing a matchlock. So this made the groups far more mobile in terms of not needing pikemen to support them. Indeed, working much better without pikemen. The next thing that really revolutionized warfare during this time was the socket bayonet. Now, this was a bayonet that allowed the wielder to shoot while the bayonet was in place. So there wasn't this whole, okay, we're coming to grips. I have to lose my firing power in order to get my melee power. There's this whole messy transition. No, you could just have the bayonet attached, shoot, and then gack your opponent. So these things made it so that the uh, contemporary tactics of the time, of the time of our Fredericks, was this required the precision discipline and large numbers, because there were these, you know, these lions marching at each other and you wanted to have them at least three deep. And so you, if you're looking at that across an entire battlefront, you, you need a lot of guys in order to fill that out. And every single one of them needs to know what they're doing, needs to know the calls, needs to know just about everything that could possibly happen on the field. They have to be prepared for it with perfect discipline. That takes a while to instill that. It takes a long, uh, you know, a, a while, especially at the time. Like I, I remember in boot camp, it was hard enough to get people to just kind of march in a square together, much less perform, you know, drastic drill within a regiment level like this in the heat of combat. So this was impressive. But these large numbers require a lot of supplies. And when we were talking about Frederick II, uh, whose book we read last year, um, he was talking about installing these, these garrisons, these arsenals throughout the countryside where you could go and get food and just kind of have that on hand now, the problem is if you start adventuring outside of your borders, or if that particular arsenal has already been drained, or if it spoils, like if there's, if there's some sort of disease or fungus or something that gets in there, and suddenly you don't have that, it starts to really hurt your system. That's a lot of mouths to feed. 
and if you're doing it correctly, there are large baggage trains, sometimes with upwards of 150 or 200% larger than the main fighting force itself. And these are blacksmiths, uh, horseshoers, cooks, the families of various officers. So this really slowed the system down. So one of the byproducts of having this large of an army and potentially the supply issues that we have talked about with the slow, uh, the slow meandering pace of an army and the being cut off from the supplies that could be ideally positioned, but not always, looting becomes common, as we've talked about. In a lot of these conflicts, a lot of armies survive basically through looting and through kind of scrounging through stuff. And one of the things we don't talk about, though, is how this really hurts the local economy and civilians, too, in, in particular. So if an army comes through and they trash a farm and take all of the different produce, well, that's not only an inconvenience to the farmer right then, but it means that that farmer can't trade for stuff in the future. It means that the farmer is basically bankrupt because everything is in what they own. So if that's happening to a number of farmers, nobody's got anything to sell. And if the ground has been torched or if the houses have been torched, this kind of ruins the area as well. So local economies, as, as armies are kind of coming to and fro, do not do well. So let's now take a look at the Prussian succession here. So Frederick I, who ruled until 1740, that's uh, Freddy's dad, uh, he, he built an amazing system. He took what Prussia had, he took what, its strengths, and he organized it into a well-oiled machine that was kind of based around the Junkers and the industrial power that Prussia had to draw from at that time. And, and the army that he left his son, Frederick II, was par none. It's kind of like the, the army that Philip left to Alexander. And a big reason of how Alexander was able to do as well as he did was because of this amazing foundation from which he was able to operate. So then comes, you know, Frederick II. And as we had discussed with his battles, they were amazing. In his early career, up until about 1763, he was unstoppable. He was taking on people on all fronts. It was really kind of incredible. However, by the time that... His, his campaigning kind of wrapped up, it wasn't just because he had lost his martial spirit. Though that appears to have happened too. He, he maybe was like, okay, I'm getting old. I want to start resorting more to peace. I, I don't want to be on the road as much. Maybe just chill here for a while. But it was also because Prussia had been exhausted at this point. That's why the old, one of the reasons this old system begins to break down and not work anymore is it doesn't have this base to draw from all these bodies to draw from. So this once progressive army, this army that was was revolutionizing warfare and kind of setting the stage for everybody else to, to stand on, is suddenly becoming archaic. Its methods suddenly fading by the wayside. And this increased use of dis diplomacy is a good indicator of that. Most of the quote-unquote conquests that happened from there on out were through diplomacy, by getting things through various partitions and such things like that. So it begins to break down further. Uh, Frederick II rules until his death in 1786. Now the 1780s are really hard for Prussia. 
as I said, it, it's struggling to keep up recruitment, even though their land area had technically expanded. But their territory that they took and the territory that they owned had been absolutely devastated by the Seven Years' War and required a lot of domestic labor to get it running again. Had to re-sow fields, had to get new local economies established. Like, there was a whole lot to do. Another big thing is that the army itself had been devastated, not just through campaigning and disease, like with a lot of these conflicts, but it also been uh, the desertions. Desertions were extremely common due to, you know, poor wages, uh, hard living conditions, Drill sergeants, who are absolutely terrible, remember that Frederick II said that a soldier should fear their superior, but the superior is not always there, right? And so you've got folks who really probably only joined up, again, not with patriotic fervor, but because they were starving or they had nothing else to do. So this is not exactly the creme de la creme that he's operating with. But the numbers are, are telling. Remember, Prussia is a relatively small kingdom at this time. And they lost, like the conservative estimate, is 80,000 troops to desertion. By comparison, you know, France and Austria had much better, much larger recruiting bases. But France lost only 70,000, where Austria only lost 62,000. So Prussia, and again, this was due to a number of factors, but this left the army even weaker. And then to compound this fact was that there were already a lot of people who were exempted from military service in Prussia, including substantial landowners, clergy, bureaucratic and academic elites, merchants and manufacturers, and now they are being joined by skilled laborers. So as you can see here, the numbers that they were able to recruit from, the actual army that they were able to build was limited within their own borders. So, like with a lot of countries, they began to employ an increasing number of mercenaries. Now, mercenaries are not the romantic figures that we sometimes portray them as. Or even, you know, when Thumbs and I were talking about our, our first unit, how we were mercenaries. You know, that, even that idea was somewhat, was massively romanticized because a lot of the times, and especially here, mercenaries came from the dregs of society. Folks who, who couldn't find work any other way, uh, soldiers who never came back from the war or criminals who found themselves particularly good at this, at this sort of thing. These were not disciplined people for the most part. And so the fighting force breaks down. Prussia's fighting force really breaks down, and their leadership issues didn't help with that either. Again, Fred Frederick II was relatively good. If he had died in 1763, he would have been remembered as one of the greatest state builders and military minds in the world. And while we still remember him that way, history also looks at this period of decline as partially being his fault because he ran out the resources of Prussia and then didn't have the ability, the resources, the cooperation to rebuild it within his rule. Frederick William II takes over after uh, Frederick the Great dies in 1786, and he rules until 1797. Now, 
he compounds the issue even further. Because, say what you will about Frederick II, he was rather reserved. Uh, man of the people would be a bit of a stretch. But he wasn't known for, you know, lavish, extravagant lifestyles or anything along those lines. And his father was, whoo, was even more so, even more stoic in that way. But Frederick William II was like other monarchs in Europe at that time, far more given to pleasure-loving and kind of looking after a lavish lifestyle more than the welfare of the state. And this weakened it even further. So this, this is where our story is going to begin in terms of Prussia. Next, we're going to be taking a look at the precipitating factor in these wars that we're going to be discussing. And the precipitating factor was the French Revolution. Before we discuss any of the wars that took place during Clausewitz's lifetime, we first have to discuss the French Revolution. Now, if you're unfamiliar with this period of history, you might be confused as to why we're talking about the French Revolution when this story is mainly about Prussia. The reason is the French Revolution threatened the surrounding countries. The reason that that's that's the whole reason why the rest of the continent was getting involved in the first place was they didn't want people getting getting the wrong idea that they could have a state that existed without their monarchs. That was a direct threat <laughs> to every other monarch in the area. So so it was very much a let's put these guys in their places, reinstate the monarchy sort of idea. But why did this revolution take first in the first place? Why, why, was, why was this even an issue? Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about how it went from this monarchy to this idea of liberty, equality, and fraternity, and then to the terror. And we're not going to talk about the terror too much right now, because I think it would make a fascinating deep dive at some point. Not several episodes, but just like one episode on the terror. So what, what happened in between? Where did the sparks in this particular case come from? Well, first we have to address the social inequality that was inherent in the estates system. Now this system had three different estates and defined through these were the, the first estate was the clergy, the priesthood. The second estate was the nobility. And the third estate was everybody else. You know, 98% of the country was the third estate. So this is already flawed because there are these class divisions that make up who you get to marry, what social circles you travel in, what uh, the trajectory of your life, style, job is going to be. All of this is determined by which of these estates you're born into. And there's no, there's no real maneuvering between them. It's a fairly rigid case system. Now, the tax burden falls almost entirely upon the third estate. Clergy pay next to nothing in taxes. Most of the nobility are able to kind of push their taxes off onto their areas, which are people who are from the third estate. So this tax burden, the state's tax burden, is falling on people who are not making the most money. This is made 
even worse because France begins to experience a financial crisis due to the very costly wars that it's been fighting, uh, namely the Seven Years' War that was taking place on the continent and where they expended quite a bit of resources. And then the American Revolution. They were very involved with that too and put a lot of resources into a revolution that didn't really directly benefit them, at least not in a material way. And so France is in trouble, financially speaking. Next, you have the rise of the bourgeoisie. Now, when we're talking about bourgeoisie in this particular sense, we're not really talking about what Marx and Engels defined the bourgeoisie as, which are the, the haves, the people who control uh, the capital, who control the means of production within a society, as opposed to the proletariat, who are the folks who do not. In this particular case, the bourgeoisie were well-off members of the third estate, people who had some clout, people who had made a little bit of money for themselves. But they were very resentful of these upper estates because, well, all of this tax, this taxation was falling on them, was falling on their businesses. And the, the only benefit of it was in the upper estates. They weren't really seeing a good return on their efforts. And for all of this, they were excluded from positions or of authority or power because they weren't born into the right estate. So this, this starts to bother people. But within this well-off section, you of course have people that are being educated and this kind of gives way to this tea house culture where ideas are able to freely flow between educated minds. And this is fueled. The things that they're talking about, these educated minds, are the Enlightenment philosophers. And these philosophers are very well known to a lot of different folks because they laid the foundations for most of our democracies. You know, if you look at France, if you look at Great Britain, and by extension, Canada, South Africa, Australia, all that good stuff. And then the United States, all of us, all of our government types, all of our democracies are based upon these ideas that would have been discussed at this time. Now, the philosophers that were really prominent, now there were a lot of them writing, of course, but the ones that were really prominent and had the most influence were Locke, Rousseau, and Montesquieu. Now, Locke, to be boiled down into the most brief of synopsis was all about the consent of the governed. You cannot successfully run a state unless you have the consent of the people that you're governing. It seems like a fairly uh, straightforward and an idea that, that is just kind of a no-brainer for most of us in the current day and age. But again, they had kings who inherited their positions from their daddy or from, you know, whatever family member was the one bequeathing downwards. And so in that particular case, the monarch doesn't have the consent. People didn't say, we want you to govern us. They were absolutely royalists during this time, but the monarchs weren't elected. Rousseau hated class division, was all about the idea of abolishing class division. Every person should just be a person. You're not being judged on who your parents were. You're not getting a, a better off you know, start in life, more advantages just because of who your parents were or just because of what class you happen to be born into. No, 
class division, was Rousseau's point. And then finally, Montesquieu had theorized that there should be a division of power within the government between a legislative, a judicial, and a executive branch. And each of these branches have their own sets of power and their own checks and balances on the other ones. If you're like me, then you are sick of hearing the word checks and balances because in middle school you said it so much that you never wanted to hear those words ever again. But it's actually kind of an important concept. It takes away the individual's power to shift a country to their will. Even if it's a good will, even if it's somebody who has great ideas, that's a bad precedent to set. Because again, consent to the governed, no class division, and then when there is a central government, there needs to be a division of power within it. Not one bigger than the other so that they can control the other sides of it. Another thing that always contributes to heightening tensions is any sort of variation in the world around us that we cannot control, whether that be in climate or otherwise. And during this time, there were drastic weather changes taking place. And that made it so that there were poor harvests as well. Now, these weather shifts were partially atmospheric, but they were also uh, driven by a volcano that had gone off nearby. Anytime that happens, you have small periods of cooling in anywhere that ash is kind of blocking the sun. And when that happens, you can have some pretty extreme weather changes already added to something that's already happening. So that makes things worse because it always does. So we're going through this. Things are stressful. The tax burden falls upon a part of the country that is not benefiting from their taxes. And of course, all these different folks, all these other brilliant minds are discussing other options. And the cost of bread goes up. Now, that may not seem like an important thing for us. You know, cost of bread goes up a little bit. Most of us are going to be just fine. But during this time, when bread consumed most of everybody's paycheck, a rise in the cost of bread would break a house. Like suddenly, suddenly you're like really compromised because that is a thing that you depend on, but it is also a thing that is getting more difficult to get and more expensive to get. Now, this was done in part because there was already a, a large strain on the state to be able to supply this, this kind of bread. So the market was deregulated, and the kings figured that deregulating the market would actually be better, would have uh, the prices go down. It did the exact opposite. It hikes the prices up and kind of shows the ineffective leadership of the time. The monarchs were completely out of touch with the people they governed, completely out of touch with the realities of the economy that they were operating in. And while there were some attempts at reforms, they were unrealistic and poorly executed and, and didn't actually end up accomplishing anything. These are the reigns of King Louis XV and King Louis XVI, particularly ineffective monarchs. So their reforms from the top down go very poorly. The reforms that are being suggested from the 98% are being successfully blocked by parliament. Now, when we're thinking about parliament here, we're not thinking about the legislative branch of you know, Great Britain, for instance. That's not the parliament we're talking about. This was a circuit of judges that ruled on behalf of the people and kind of uh, 
brought that upwards to very, very, very poorly uh, paraphrase it. So most reforms stall here, especially the tax reform. Any talk of that immediately stalls out here, partially because the judges are seeking to retain the favor of the ruling classes and their positions. When your paycheck is coming from the person who also puts you in power, you want to do, a person in that position wants to do what the boss says. I mean, they own you at that point, really. So this made it so that nothing was moving upwards either. Nothing was happening in the country that was good. And then to add insult to injury, you have the extremely extravagant lifestyle of the monarchy and the nobility. There are so many movies that take place during this time, and you can I can conjure the image in my head. Gold on just about everything. You have marble everywhere else. Everybody's dressed in these gorgeous gowns and amazing suits, all of which cost so much. And the food, oh my goodness, the food that the nobility are eating, the dancing, the music, the culture, it was a great time to be a noble or especially a king. It was not a good time to be anybody else. Everybody else is dealing with rising costs of everything. Everybody else is dealing with tax burdens and the, the, these leadership. Again, nobody believes. Well, there are people, again, there's, re, there's absolutely royalists during this time. There's always royalists. But the, there's a large enough group of people going, this is not fair. Why are these people benefiting from what we are doing? So within this framing, you have the French Revolution, which again, wouldn't necessarily matter to our story, except that it poses a threat. All of these issues are rather endemic to most of the monarchies in Europe. All of them suffered from the Seven Years' War. The vast majority of them shifted their tax burden to the small, the people who did not make as much but represented a larger portion of the country. These issues that were taking place in France were largely taking place everywhere else too. It's just that there was a lot of contributing factors in France that made it more extreme and kind of made things take off a little bit more. But this was the beginning of the end. I mean, there was a reason that the monarchs were so afraid of this. It was the beginning of the end of their style of rule. Most countries started transitioning to democracies or parliamentary republics or, or something along those lines after, after this period. But yeah, temporarily, the monarchs fought back hard to try to maintain their way of life, which was very beneficial to them. So between these two things, you have this Prussia that is in decline, and then you have France that becomes destabilized by an internal revolution, this is kind of the stress. This is the tension by which we're going to meet our new guy, Clausewitz. Finally, let's talk about our author, a man who we're going to all be very familiar with by the end of this. Again, have I mentioned this is going to be a massive book? 
I'm looking forward to it. I, I hope you are too. This is going to be a lot of fun. But Klaus Fitz, as a person, and we're going to go over this a little bit more later, he is probably not going to give me too many opportunities to pick a fight with a dead guy because he already did. <laughs> he, he has a very similar policy in his approach to things. So, and of course, his method is so darn good that there's hard to find significant flaws in it. I mean, it holds up, holds up even today. So who could have written this? Well, he was born on the 1st of June, 1780. He also died. Well, everybody dies. That makes sense. But he particularly died on the 17th of November, 1831. So his early life, his grandfather had been a professor of theology and his father was a lieutenant in Frederick II's army. So he comes from good lineage for what he did. Not only does he come from an, a lineage that values education and not just education, but teaching, he also had the first hand experience from his father that he was able to learn about. So he had a very good foundation from which to build everything else. And he himself started his military experience young. He entered into military service as a Lance Corporal in 1792. For those of you at home who are doing the math, yes, that means he entered service at 12 years old. 12 years old, on purpose, <laughs> was already in service. I, what were you doing at 12? I certainly wasn't a Lance Corporal in a major war, like army. Like, uh, this is just crazy. That's absolutely not, even crazier is that they accepted him. I know, I know that, that this was a different time and I know that even now, there are soldiers that are as young as this, but m I would say the vast majority of them, if not all, were pressed into service. Child ser uh, soldiers now are uh, typically there because they're indoctrinated heavily. They're not really in it. They don't go out and, and volunteer for service like Clausewitz did. So he served between uh, in the campaign of 1793 and 94, which was namely the Rhine campaign. And this was the first coalition against revolutionary France. Recall that the other monarchs on the continent did not like the potential implications of this revolution and the ideas that it put forth. And so they had come forth to, to teach him a lesson, as it were. But after that campaign, he sort of disappears off the radar. But during this time, he is devoting his himself to understanding the science behind military affairs. Not just the art of it, not just kind of the, the gut feeling, knowing how to maneuver an army and make things work together, but like the actual science of it. Artillery trajectory, number of people needed for a certain area, the amount of supply that is needed to like support that number of people. There is so much detail that he starts studying at this point. When he comes back in, he enters the military school in Berlin, where he's at from 1801 to 1803. And while he's there, he gained the attention of a very influential and distinguished general, General Scharnhorst. I'm sorry to our German listeners. I'm, this is going to be a tough book for you, and I appreciate your patience. 
through these connections that he was able to develop through through uh, General Scharnhorst, he managed to get a position as an aide-de-camp to Prince Augustus. An aide-de-camp, if you're not familiar with the term, is a confidential secretary to a commander of some sort. And they kind of handle the mundane affairs. They figure out what mail to pass and, and get things to where it needs to be. They take notes if need be. Really, whatever the needs are of a commander, the aide-de-camp sees to them. And so he was an aide-de-camp to Prince Augustus in the 1806 campaign, which was the one of the wars of the Fourth Coalition. Now, the reason I say that with foreboding is because Prussia was utterly crushed in the Battle of Jena Auerstedt. Just, just crushed. Clausewitz himself is wounded and ends up in, in prison in France until 1808. And, and when I say crushed, I mean like crushed. Crushed to the point that in the treaty that was signed afterward, the Treaty of Tilsit in 1807, it effectively makes Prussia into a satellite state of France. They have a troop cap, a massive amount of their land has been seceded, and there's a French garrison that is uh, supposed to be there at all times. So this is the Prussia that Frederick comes out to. He went in, uh, Prussia is still a fairly proud military state. He comes out and they are uh, forced to be submissive to a foreign power. But he comes back and he begins to assist in reforms, not just to the army, but also state reforms, including the abolition of serfdom and the encouragement of competition in the marketplace. Up until this point, the markets were dominated by a few guilds who were able to set the prices at what they wanted. What he wanted to encourage, and what was the, the trend at the time, was to encourage competition between these various market forces in, in order to bring innovation. And so there were, there were a lot of really cool reforms that were passing during this time. And he is having a, a pretty good time of it as well. On December 10th of 1810, he marries Countess Maria von Brühl. Countess. Hey. And she is educated and very well connected. So she, he's got two people on his side that really have uh, good connections for him. General Scharnhorst, and then his wife, of course, the Countess Brühl. And so he, again, he's doing very well within the military himself, but there's a, a treaty between Prussia and France that is struck. It's called the uh, Treaty of Paris, and it is an alliance with Napoleon against Russia. An alliance with Napoleon against Russia. And... There's a lot of Prussian officers that are not cool with this. And they actually end up going over to serve Russia in this conflict. And Clausewitz is one of them. Just kind of goes over, you know, up and quits. And it's like, all right, if we're not going to resist this sort of thing, we're not working with France, especially against Russia. And the service, I mean, obviously it works. If you know anything about Napoleon, it's the famous thing of never try to wage a land war on Russia in the winter, which was true for just about every army that has tried to do that, except for the Mongols. The Mongols did it pretty well. Nobody else has managed to accomplish it, not in the, not in any sort of reaching sort of way. 
So it stalls, but not before uh, he helps negotiate a Prussian revolt against France and is a, uh, a pivotal factor in convening and kind of getting things going in the Convention of Turagen. And this, is, this was in 1812, and this paves the way for an alliance going forward against France. Now, 1812, that always reminds me of the, the 1812 overture. Cannons. Cannons. You know, it, we played it when I was in band. It's very exciting, especially when you have, like, cannons to play it with. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's fun. So... In 1815, this Russian-German legion, as it's called, is integrated into the Prussian army proper. And uh, this is after Waterloo, of course, and things have kind of simmered down. And he gains a uh, position as a chief of staff. Now, a chief of staff, if you're not familiar with that, is almost exactly what it sounds like. The chief of all the different staff elements, helping sift through it, helping bring things that are of actual uh, importance, to everybody else, a step up from an aide-de-camp, but basically running a section on his own, but underneath another commander. So after these Napoleonic Wars are all ended, he holds a very brief command before he becomes a major general and the director of the military school. And he's there between 1818 and 1830. So a massive portion of his career is spent at this posting. He spends as long at this posting as he was old when he joined up with the military in the first place. And it was during this time that he began to write the book that we're about to enjoy. However, he's called out of there. Good instructor, does very well for himself, but he's called back to active duty because of a uh, outbreak of revolutions. In Poland, remember this whole revolution thing, not good. And so the chance of this kind of spilling over the border was high. So there was only, but there was only one army at this time, just the one group, not a large group, just the one. And they were going over there to deal not only with the outbreak of these revolutions, but the outbreak of cholera, which had made it to mainland Europe for the very first time. I don't know if you've ever tried to control an outbreak. But if our present situation is any indication, it is not easy. The fellow who is in charge of these efforts, Marshal Neisenau, he dies of cholera in August of 1831. Again, surrounded by it, they didn't have the sanitation procedures that we do now. They didn't have the whole clean water idea that we do now. When you think about how cholera spreads... And I want to talk about it on this show. If, if you are that curious, wiki cholera. And uh, yeah, get yourself some of that because it is not a nice way. So if, if it was spreading as fast as it was, that means it was nasty at the time. And, and also recall that every time we've talked about these wars that occurred before sanitation practices were taking place, uh, you know, the American Civil War, the American Revolution, uh, just about everything that happened in Europe, of course, 30 years war, seven years war, all the little Nicene conflicts between, between everybody else. The highest number was never from battlefield casualties. 
but it was for from disease, from infections. And this was no different. So the marshal dies. And then, uh, of course, Clausewitz takes over the efforts to contain this pandemic, to try to keep it under control. And he himself dies from cholera just a few months later in November. So that's 17th of November, 1831. He dies from the cholera that he was trying to contain. And thus ended a brilliant military career. Again, he wasn't, he wasn't one of those officers that was out in the front of the charge. We're not talking about a lead from the front sort of military leader. But what we're talking about is an astute mind that learned from what he was experiencing. The majority of this book, the examples that he gives, are from the Seven Years' War and the Napoleonic Wars. Also wars that we reference to, the, to this very day because of the lessons that are contained there. But he was able to analyze this to such an amazing degree. I'm really thankful for it. So his, his wife, the widow Countess Maria von Bruhl, she ends up editing and publishing his work on war. He, it was still not finished by the time of his death. He still had things that he wanted to put into it. Look at this book. I mean, seriously, look at this book. It wasn't even finished. Ugh. leave it to oppression. But yes, so that's how On War came, came to be with us. Again, it's, it's an unfinished work that you wouldn't know it while reading through it. And it contains a lot of gems. Again, it, it's been very influential ever since it was written, ever since it was published. And it's unfortunate that Clausewitz wasn't able to see how revered his work was going to be. But it has been. I mean, there are several terms that come from it. A famous quote is that war is a continuation of politics by other means, uh, a term that we all use. If you've ever played a video game where you cannot see a section of the map that is outside of your sight line, what do you call that? Fog of war, right? He's the first one to say that. Talking about all the things you can't see, the unknowns, the, the shifting like sands of the battle that are outside of your purview, the fog of war. Even his terms have lived on in the common vernacular. And so one of the reasons that I'm not going to have to pick fights with dead guys, like I said, is that he did plenty of it. Not just of the commanders that had come before him in history, but also of a lot of his contemporaries. Do you know anybody else that wrote a book in the early 1800s on military tactics? No? Well, that's because they didn't have <laughs> the same staying power. His critiques were absolutely legit. Several of his, of his uh, contemporaries wrote more in the style of Sun Tzu, more about the impressions, the intuitions, and he said that's stupid. That's stupid for what we do. There's a high level of technicality involved here. There's a time and a place for a Sun Tzu, and it's already been written. What we need is a technical manual for how to get this done in the current day and age, and that's what he brought. And he studies, again, the Seven Years' War and Napoleonic Wars fairly consistently. He was a part of the Napoleonic Wars. He was able to analyze it from a lot of different angles. He went from being an aide-de-camp to being a, a chief of staff, and all the while he's learning. How can you not? You're in a position where you have so much information that you have access to, and he used it. He used all of that information. It's, it's really quite brilliant. He was heavily influenced, though. Remember where we had talked about the state reforms in addition to the army reforms, 
and even throughout this entire book. At the time, there was an author that was very popular amongst a lot of different circles, and he wrote two books that heavily influenced Clausewitz and the way that he approached not just warfare, but also the state reforms. The first of which was the theory of moral sentiments. Now, this is Adam Smith. And the second one is an inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations, or the wealth of nations, as it is more commonly called. Now, I always find it interesting. I'm just going to take an aside real quick. These two books, again, written by the same person, and they are currently used separately. There's a lot of people, a lot of capitalists, who hold the wealth of nations to be a, a gospel in a lot of ways. It is kind of lays the framework for a free market. It encourages that competition between various people, and it allows for human greed. That's really the brilliant part of it, is it doesn't expect people to be perfect. It allows for human greed to be one of the driving factors of it. Really kind of brilliant when you think about it. Well, on the other side, this a theory of moral sentiments, he speaks about the, the need of the state to take care of its people, the need for, for just and compassionate ruling. And so the theory of moral sentiments actually sets the stage in a lot of ways for modern socialism and an inquiry into the nature and causes of wealth of nations sets the, the stage for capitalism. And he wrote them coming from the same point of view, that society's policies should be based on compassion and the economy should loosely be based around greed, was kind of the idea here. Though, in my experience, it's more common that people have only read one of these books and is entirely unaware of the existence of the other. So if you've only read one, or neither, I would certainly recommend picking them up. They, they are really good insights into a lot of the issues that we are currently having today. So that's Clausewitz. He's pretty cool. He had a, a really interesting career, again, from 12 until he was in the ground. He was a military man. And he studied it intensely. He wasn't, he wasn't a glory hound. He wasn't out there trying to really make a name for himself in that way. He, he watched, he observed, he analyzed, and even better, he wrote it down. Because those observations would not be worth anything to us right now if he hadn't written them down before 1831. So we can, we can thank luck or... Actually, we should probably thank Countess Maria von Bruhl if we're going to thank anybody. Because, yeah, she, she's the reason why we have these, uh, these writings today. So uh, that's, that's what we're going to be studying. Again, we're, this is going to be a long book. So we're going to be going over several different conflicts. We're going to talk uh, about the Seven Years' War uh, in, a wider, in a wider scale. We're going to talk, of course, about the Napoleonic conflict and the wars of revolution that were also taking place. And then we'll probably take a touch into the 30 years war, because I imagine we're going to have time for it. So I'm looking forward to sharing this book with you. And I look forward to where our study takes us. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargaming 
podcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earworm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off.